Welcome back to Sports Cuts with D. Crom, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, David Cromelo, and it is week nine in the NFL, meaning we have officially reached the halfway point of the 2017 season. And boy, that halfway point was marked with a trading frenzy that we have rarely, if ever, seen in the National Football League. And our friend Hal Bent from MusketFire.com, Cover32.com, and Scout Media is here once again to help us break down these blockbuster trades and Week 9 matchups, plus hand out our first annual midseason awards. What's up, pal? How you doing? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me once again. And another fantastic and exciting and unpredictable week of NFL football. Uh, Another unpredictable, exciting week. As usual, Hal, it's been that kind of season, and the uncertainty has only grown, not only given these trades, but sadly with injuries to key players. J.J. Watt, Whitney Merciless, Aaron Rodgers, David Johnson, Dalvin Cook, and just yesterday in practice, Deshaun Watson tearing his ACL. This season, as fun as it has been in ways, it's also been depressing in ways, dare I say, because of the injuries to key players. And a tweet was sent out this morning by, I forgot who, like a prominent writer, I believe. It might have been Kevin Clark of The Ringer, uh, saying that the only elite team in the NFL right now is everybody on injured reserve. And uh, I also forgot, I apologize, Odell Beckham. You need to add to that list, too. So if you put all the stars on injured reserve into one team, you have a Super Bowl team that is better than any healthy team right now. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you can add to that list Ryan Tannehill, Julian Edelman, Eric Berry, one of my favorite players, Brandon Marshall. It's it's mind-boggling to see all the injuries piling up here. And, you know, there's usually injuries. I'm sure if you look number to number from year to year, somebody's going to break it down and it's pretty even. But the star power is, as you referenced, just mind-boggling to see so many faces of the NFL on injured reserve and not playing. And they wonder why TV ratings are down. Yeah, you said it, Hal. And uh, those injuries, uh, the declining quality of quarterback play, uh, social media, uh, being able to stream games online, uh, I think those are more are as big as those other factors. Wouldn't you say so? I couldn't agree more. And I'll throw in as well all the courts and suspensions and all that baloney that goes on as well. You've got Ezekiel Elliott this year. We just survived the Tom Brady suspension and court stuff. There was Adrian Peterson. There was the Ray Rice situation. Everything piling up year after year now. And it's just fatigue. People want to talk about the product on the field, not what's going on off the field. And that's driving people away. It is, but nonetheless, the NFL still remains very exciting, and it still remains the most watched show on cable television. So the NFL, in my opinion, there's no need to panic, but I believe this offseason of these next three years before the CBA expires, I think it's going to be a very important time to look in the mirror and uh, fine-tune the product. And uh, I don't want any more weekly Thursday night games because it was another boring one last night. And weekly Thursday night games, I agree with Richie Incognito. They are just stupid and unfair. I agree as well. There's so much risk for injury with players not fully recovered from playing on Sunday. If they could work out something where every team was going on or coming off a bye week, you could maybe sell that to me. But I'm in agreement with you. 
the part of the product problem is the overload of the games, the Monday night, the Sunday night, the Sunday morning, the Thursday night. And football fanatics like us, we're already watching college football all day Saturday, the Friday night game, the Wednesday night game. We're oversaturated. And never mind the casual fan. So they've got to take a hard look at that product. But at the same time, the money that they're bringing in on Thursday night is in the billions of dollars already. So how do you turn away from a billion dollars if you're an owner? You really have to have a level head and a long-term outlook. And there's just not enough of them out there with that mindset. Yes, and uh, speaking of Thursday night football, I just remember back in the olden days, uh, talking about uh, like uh, mid-2000 to 2011, they only did Thursday night football for half of the year at most. And they only did it occasionally back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I think we have to go back to those days. Uh, if the owners want to play on Thursday night, that's fine. But doing it weekly is uh, j just insane. I agree, and especially when you start looking at things like when that CB up, CBA is up, is the NFL going to go and push the players for an 18-game season as well and extend that product even more and risk more injury all for that almighty dollar? It's hard for those owners to say no to that money that just keeps pumping in because it's not them that are out on the field. The NFL does indeed have difficult decisions to make in the years ahead. But now let's focus on the product on the field right now, which is what we do here at Sports Crunch with DCROM, or at least we try to do most of the time. What were your major takeaways from Week 8, Hal? Well, Week 8, the biggest thing I saw was in-game coaching blunders. I started keeping a list that was so bad. The Lions, the Chargers, the Chiefs. The Texans, the 49ers, Bill O'Brien taking the ball out of Deshaun Watson's hands at the end of the game, Detroit not kicking a field goal, and Pittsburgh making it a 10-point swing with a 97-yard touchdown to Juju Smith-Schuster, Anthony Lynn sending out Nick Novak in the wind and rain for a 50-something-yard field goal that swung momentum early in that game, Kyle Shanahan not going for a the touchdown on a fourth and goal at the nine down by three scores. You've got to get touchdowns. You don't have time to kick field goals and have a chance to even be in the game. And, and last of all, Kansas city, even though they won against Denver, Tyreek Hill throwing that pass in the end zone, when you had a chance to go up 21, nothing, you just can't do that kind of stuff. Way too cute. Andy Reed, Andy Reed, you are going to have to take those plays out of the playbook, especially for now, and save those for unpredictable moments in the playoffs. I was absolutely befuddled by that decision by Andy Reid to have Tyreek Hill throw the ball. That was way too cute. The, the Chiefs should have put that game away at that moment in the first quarter on that drive. They could have scored a touchdown or got a field goal to go up 17-0 to put the game out of reach. The game shouldn't have been as close as it was in the second half. And that decision by Jim Caldwell was just appalling. Sometimes, as a coach of the NFL, you just have to understand you got to take the points. And because Jim Caldwell didn't take the points, his team lost. And uh, that was uh, a lot of bad coaching decisions, as you said, in week eight. And now let's uh, discuss these blockbuster trades that went down. And let's grade these trades, starting with the trade that broke at this time last week when we were recording. Marcel Darius being traded to the Jaguars. Well, uh, for Buffalo, it's a huge salary cap reduction 
they're getting rid of a player who there were whispers about wasn't happy in the clubhouse. So solid B there. Can't be an A because there's just too much talent that's leaving the organization there. For Jacksonville, it can't be an A either, even though they have the chance to have a player who could be a huge boon for an already excellent defense. They need Calais Campbell to take him under his wing and get his head on in the, the right place. They're going to be paying him a ton of money, so he better be worth it. But B for both parties in this trade. Yeah, and Marcel Darius will really improve the main weakness on this Jaguars defense, which is their run defense, which has occasionally been very leaky this year. And Darius should ensure that that doesn't happen often anymore. And the Seattle Seahawks acquiring Dwayne Brown from the Texans just days after they played the Texans in a thriller. Uh, how would you grade that for both teams? Uh, for the Texans, it's going to be a B. You, uh, again, this is a talented player, and especially in the wake of the Deshaun Watson injury just days later, it, it's a huge loss because Watson made up for so many mistakes on the offensive line in front of him with his escapability skills. So now not having Brown blocking, not having Watson back there, it's going to be a tough second half of the season for them. So we'll give it a B-. minus. Um, on the other side, for Seattle, even though they're giving up a second, a third, and a fifth, uh, with Jeremy Lane out of the equation on that trade, it's still a huge upgrade for their offensive line, and that vaults them to the head of the list for contenders in the NFC right now because, hey, they don't have to go through Aaron Rodgers this year either. I completely agree, and that should only ensure that Russell Wilson sets career highs in total touchdowns this year as he appears on pace to do so. And the trade that shocked everybody in your backyard and the rest of the National Football League, the New England Patriots trading Jimmy Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers for a second-round pick in 2018. How would you grade that for both teams? Well, for San Francisco, that's a straight A. Garoppolo costs next to nothing. They've got a half season to evaluate him in their system. Uh, he's looked like in his six quarters of play in New England, like a top-flight quarterback. They could have solved their quarterback issue, potentially, and have a top-five pick next year that they can spend any way they want, whether they want to go for a skill position offensive line or add to that defense. That opens up their options. So A-plus for San Francisco on that trade. For New England, you know, you heard so much in the offseason about Garoppolo. I really believe Bill Belichick thought Garoppolo was going to be the quarterback that would replace Tom Brady. I think Belichick is as surprised as the rest of the world in that Tom Brady at age 40 is showing no sign of drop-off in his game. And it got to a point where you just... You have no choice. You can't trade him this offseason. All you can do is tag him. And I don't think ownership has any plans for a backup quarterback to make $25 million in New England. So uh, for New England, should have pulled the trigger a little sooner, I think. Uh, we'll give them a C on that. At least they got a high second-round pick out of it. Yes, and it also, I believe, shows that the Patriots appear confident that Tom Brady can play well into his 40s. And uh, and Brady said that he wanted to play until he was 44, 45 years old. I think the Patriots believe he can. And this and the fact they trade Garoppolo away 
I believe, uh, magnifies that faith that the Patriots have. Had the Philadelphia Eagles, the best team in the National Football League at the moment, in my opinion, potentially got even dangerous by trading one of their three fourth-round picks to the Dolphins for running back Jay Ajayi, who they hope, who they hope, will become their bell cow runner in that crowded backfield. How would you grade that? Oh, that's an A for the Eagles easily. Um, you know, like you had mentioned, they had three fourth-round picks. It's basically playing with house money at that point. Ajayi doesn't cost anything salary-wise. He had that huge breakout season last season. Yes, he struggled. Um, yes, Miami, all those rumors came out after clubhouse problem, wasn't running in the right hole, trying to hit a home run every run. All, you know, his knees are shot, all of this stuff that comes out after a player's gone, which 99% of it is just garbage. I, I think for Miami, it sends, I, I see what they're trying to do. They're imitating that Bill Belichick trading Jamie Collins and shaking up the clubhouse and saying, hey, we've got to, you know, get our heads in the right direction, everybody rowing in the right direction. But you run a risk on that as a young coach and you know, for Miami, that could really hurt them in the second half of the season and, and derail what looked like a promising season for them. So Miami, I'm going to give them a C minus, the Eagles straight A. Very astute assessment there, Hal. And last but not least, uh, two old friends, Ron Rivera and Sean McDermott, got on the phone and they uh, discussed a trade and a trade got done just right before the deadline with the Panthers acquiring a third and seventh round pick in this year's draft, in the 2018 draft from Buffalo, in exchange for wide receiver Kelvin Benjamin. How would you grade that? Well, for Buffalo, that's a straight A right there. They have, as we saw last night on Thursday night, a lack of talent at wide receiver, and they desperately needed an upgrade. And to get a 1,000-yard receiver, a big receiver who can help out in the red zone, uh, that's straight A for Buffalo. For Carolina, giving up an asset like that, midway through a season where you're five and three and a half a game out of first place, looking at an opportunity to make another playoff run like in 2015, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to hear that he's. you have other big receivers. Look at what New Orleans is doing with a pair of big receivers. They're making matchup headaches for everybody up and down the line. For Carolina, it seems like they're waving a white flag, which makes no sense. I'm giving them a D. Yeah, the Panthers definitely have their work cut out for them on offense, especially now without Benjamin, as uh, we will discuss in a bit. But now let's give out our first annual Sports Crunch Midseason Awards. And we hope to make this an annual tradition here on Sports Crunch with D-Crown, where we hand out awards at the halfway point of the season and at the end of the season. And let's start with Offensive Player of the Year. Who would you give the award for Offensive Player of the Year if the season ended today? Uh, I would have to give it to Deshaun Watson if the season ended today. I don't think there's been an offensive player. Well, I will say maybe Kareem Hunt, but Deshaun Watson, forget about rookie of the year. He's been right up there with uh, anybody for offensive player of the year. And just a slight edge. I'm going to give him the edge over another rookie hunt. I'm going to give him the edge over Carson Wentz in Philadelphia by a nose. It's Deshaun Watson, and sadly, we don't get to see him for the second half. It is very sad indeed, but for Offensive Player of the Year, I'm going a different route here. I'm going to say Alex Smith. 
the way that Alex Smith is playing this year, he this is a guy who could be playing in his last year in Kansas City, depending on how uh, fast uh, Patrick Mahomes grows up and matures in the playbook. But the way Alex Smith has is playing this year is just admirable. Like he's been like unfairly labeled as this game manager, can't do anything, uh, he can't win. Um, but he's like playing with that chip on his shoulder this year, and it's showing. And and credit to Andy Reid and the coaching staff, they're in, in, interpreting more uh, college plays that suit him better. Because keep in mind, Alex Smith was a spread option quarterback under Urban Meyer at Utah, and that part of his game was what made him so intriguing. And Andy Reid has allowed that to be featured more often in, in the Chiefs' offense, and he's found a way to make it work in an NFL setting. And and that has really helped Alex Smith, but I give Alex Smith complete credit for taking advantage of this opportunity and for and for showing that he still has a lot left in the tank. Alex Smith is my Offensive Player of the Year. How about Defensive Player of the Year? Uh, defensive Player of the Year, there are a lot of options there. Uh, in the AFC, you're looking at Calais Campbell, who's made such an impact for Jacksonville. In the NFC, NFC you've got players like Demarcus Lawrence, Everson Griffin. Um, you've always got your standbys, Khalil Mack, Vaughn Miller. I'm going to say the biggest impact is easily Calais Campbell in Jacksonville, taking on a pass-rushing role, moving off the nose. Um, he's just been a revelation, and the the winning attitude he brings to the locker room on top of it. Calais Campbell, player of the year on defense. I completely agree. And it's not Jacksonville. It's Saxonville, as they say. <laughs> it's Saxonville. Offensive rookie of the year. Who do you got there? You know, I want to give it, I, if, if I'm going to say player of the year is Watson, I have to say it's Watson as well. But there's so many choices. You've got Kareem Hunt. I already brought up Leonard Fournette. Uh, New Orleans has got Alvin Kamara having a great season as well. Um, Got to go with Watson, though. He's just been, you know, so electric this year. I agree. Deshaun Watson for Offensive Rookie of the Year. Defensive Rookie of the Year. Who do you got? There's another one. This one, I'm looking at the secondary because I think there's two players that really stand out. Uh, Tredavious White in Buffalo and Marshawn Lattimore in New Orleans. Both players have come in, played like veterans. Um, you're just not used to seeing young cornerbacks step into a role and be so dominant. I, I think Pro Football Focus has um, Marshawn Lattimore rated as the number one cornerback in all of the NFL. So I've got to give it to Lattimore. He's just changed that entire defensive culture in New Orleans and made such a huge impact as a rookie. Amen. Marshawn Lattimore, who should have been a top five pick last April, he is my defensive rookie of the year, too. Most improved player. Who do you got? Uh, most improved. It's it's kind of a toss up there. There's a couple of players who, you know, you look at for different reasons, injuries. Earl Thomas was uh, missed a big chunk. Desmond Trufant last year for Atlanta was was out injured. Um, I'm going to go with a, a little bit of a wild card and say quarterback Josh McCown for the Jets. I mean, I think when he was signed by the Jets, everybody thought he was pretty much a washed up joke. And, you know, 0-16, 0-16. And he has been, despite a few mistakes, very, very solid in that role. And, you know, 
he, he's been a great addition for the Jets, and that's why they're hovering near 500 instead of 0 and 8 and in the fight for that first pick, whether that's good or not. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it will be interesting to see how this performance by Josh McCown impacts the Jets uh, long term. But for most improved player, I'm going to go with uh, the guy who would have been the defensive MVP this year had it had he been a household name, Akeem Hicks of the Chicago Bears. Like his presence on that defensive line. Uh, at his leadership, he has like transformed the Bears from that three and thirteen team into a team that is a tough out almost every single Sunday. Drew Brees and the Saints, they had a very hard time with him last week. And the Bears, uh, even though they're probably not going to make the playoffs, they are going to continue to be a very tough opponent every single week. And that is in large part due to Akeem Hicks and that young defensive front. Akeem Hicks is my most improved player of the year. For comeback player of the year, who do you got? Comeback player of the year, again, I'm kind of in that same group of players. I'm going to say Des Trufant for Atlanta because this is a team that went to the Super Bowl without him, and you kind of figured he'd get lost in the shuffle, and then we saw Atlanta give him that big contract, and he stepped in at cornerback and has been a completely shut-down corner for all the troubles going on in Atlanta this year. Trufant has not been one of him, one of them. I'm giving him the comeback player of the year. Ooh, very good choice, Sal, but I am going to go with Earl Thomas because seeing him get hurt last year and the Seahawks defense completely fall flat after that, and plus he tweeted after he got hurt that he might have been pottering retirement. That might have been an exaggeration. Uh, We'll never quite know that because only Earl Thomas knows what's going on in his head, Uh, and and he has been absolutely lights out this year. He has been a difference maker in every single game. And and his pick six last week against the Texans and his strip of Todd Gurley at the goal line a couple weeks ago, those two plays were arguably the difference between win and loss. So Earl Thomas gets my comeback player of the year. Fantasy player of the year. Who's your fantasy player of the year? Oh, that's an easy one, and you're going to like this one. It's Kareem Hunt. There's nobody even close to him for a fantasy player of the year for everybody that scooped him up in the middle rounds. What a win. Kareem Hunt definitely has a case, man, and as a fantasy owner of Kareem Hunt, I concur, but I'm going to give it to Todd Gurley because Gurley, I had him off my board when I was picking in my fantasy drafts because everybody was writing Gurley off uh, looking at his yards per carry average, uh, which still hasn't improved that much, but uh, people were saying, oh, this is Trent Richardson 2.0, but Sean McVay comes in and completely turns him around by featuring him more in the passing game, which allows him to show off more of that athleticism when you get him in space. He has resurrected Todd Gurley's career, not just on the field, but in fantasy as well. And Todd Gurley has been a consistent, like, fantasy producer at around 20-plus points per game almost the entire year. So I give my award for Fantasy Player of the Year to Todd Gurley. Coach of the Year, who would you get here? Well, it would have been Andy Reid up until last week, I think. (laughs) First quarter (laughs) of the season, maybe. I'm going with Mike Zimmer in Minnesota. Talk about players, uh, coaches who have come in and got their players to row in the right direction. And I know Sean McDermott, Sean McVay are are choices that would be very easy to pick here as well. But I think Zimmer's got overlooked a little bit. I mean, he's on his third quarterback there in Minnesota. And they're still winning each week. And they're playing strong defense. They can attack you through the air. He's lost Dalvin Cook. They're still chugging along. I'm all in on Mike Zimmer, who I think Cincinnati made a huge mistake many years ago, letting him go in the the first place. 
That is a very good choice, Hal, but I have a tie here for Coach of the Year, and that tie is between Sean McDermott and Todd Bowles. Before the year, everybody was writing off the Jets and Bills as two teams that were tanking to get the number one overall pick in the 2018 draft. The exact opposite. And there might not be any superstars or household names on any of these two teams, but both of them have just coached the snot out of their players this year, and it is showing on the field. The Jets, they shouldn't be four and five. They should be, dare I say, five and four, if not five and three. They should have won at Miami. And Sean McDermott, uh, what he, everybody was leaving the Bills for dead after they traded away Sammy Watkins and Ronald Darby. Uh, and people were saying, oh, Tyrod Taylor is not going to be there at all next year. They're going to switch quarterbacks to Nathan Peterman midway through the season. Both of these two guys have done as good a job of coaching as I have seen anybody in my entire uh, career of observing the NFL. So we got a tie for me for Coach of the Year between Todd Bowles and Sean McDermott. Assisted Coach of the Year, who would you give it to? Ooh, that is a tough one there. Um, there are so many assistant coaches to choose from that are making such a big case. I'm going to go with Jim Schwartz in Philadelphia. He's done wonders piecing together that defense to, to, to put the Eagles in position to be 7-1 and one right now. I certainly didn't see that as a top-10 defense heading into the season. And then if you had told me Ronald Darby would be out as well for an extended period, no way, no how. I'm all in on Schwartz, though. He's changed that culture on defense in Philadelphia. Jim Schwartz is a fantastic choice, but I'm going to go with Saints defensive coordinator Dennis Allen. The first two weeks of the year, it looked like, oh, the same old Saints defense. Here they go again. But he just coached the snot out of, dare I say once again, those young players, especially those rookies, whether it's Marshawn Lattimore, uh, but you also got uh, young players like Sheldon Rakids and Cameron Jordan has upped his game. He's turning into a top 10 pass rusher in this league. Uh, Alex Anzalone turned out to be a great linebacker. Uh, Marcus Williams, another rookie, is a regular contributor in their uh, dime package. And uh, you also got another corner, Ken Crawley, who was an undrafted free agent out of Colorado last year. He has had some great moments, too. Dennis Allen has, like, led the Saints out of the darkness. And, yes, uh, the Eagles might not have been seen as a top 10 defense, but they were at least top 15 to me because that front we always knew that front could be good but nobody thought had the saints um where they are right now defensively and a lot of that has to go to dennis allen executive of the year who would you give it to well definitely not jerry jones with the fervor <laughs> that he's co <laughs> that he's caused this season but um you know buffalo doesn't really have uh you know, Brandon Bean's in there kind of is holding the hand to Sean McDermott, a lot of people have said, but he's made a lot of bold moves. And for somebody that was just supposed to be a mouthpiece for Coach McDermott, uh, Brandon Bean has really uh, taken the reins in Buffalo. And we saw those decisive moves again, trading away Marcel Darius last week. Uh, and we, you've already talked about the improvements in the Bills and, and coaching up those players as McDermott and his staff, uh, Leslie Frazier and Rick Dennison have done. But getting those right players in, getting the, the headaches, the players who aren't overachieving, who are underachieving out, I'm giving Brandon Bean the executive of the midway of the season. Uh, Brandon Bean definitely has a case, but I just cannot 
not give it to Howie Roseman, Eagles general manager. Last year, you give up all that draft capital for Carson Wentz. And then after that, you trade away Sam Bradford to the Vikings for a first and fourth round pick. And you get Carson Wentz some some useful experience in his rookie year. And then you turn that number one pick into Derek Barnett. And then you also trade to Baltimore. You flip picks and you get Timmy Jernigan, whose presence has been the final piece from making that defensive line go from good to great, to elite. And you also uh, get Ronald Darby, uh, trade for him, and his return will uh, likely improve that defense even more. And you use the first and four that you got for the Vikings to get Derek Barnett, your young rookie uh, defensive lineman who has become a key cog in that rotation. and that fourth to get Jay Ajayi. Howie Roseman has built the Eagles into a legitimate Super Bowl contender overnight, and that's why he gets my executive of the year. And MVP, I think we're going to stay with the Eagles here, Hal, don't you? It's Carson Wentz all the way. He's been the best player from week one through week eight, um, week in, week out. He's just been, you know, wow you know, rubbing it in the face of the poor Browns fans who have to look at him go out there and put up great numbers for the Eagles every week, knowing that he could have been theirs and they did not want to take him. So easily Carson Wentz. Sorry, Cleveland. (laughs) Sorry, Cleveland, indeed. Carson Wentz is my midseason MVP as well. And uh, let's preview these week nine matchups right now. And let's start with an important NFC South match between the Falcons and Panthers. This is for second place in the division, and whoever wins will either be just a game or a half game behind the Saints at the end of Sunday. And when looking at the Falcons and Panthers, these are two teams that have been tremendously disappointing on offense. And who would you say is the main culprit of the offensive struggles for both of these teams so far this season? Well, for Carolina, uh, you know, you hate to throw Cam Newton under the bus. You know, he's had he had such a horrible start and then looked like he was bouncing back when they went up against New England and he, he put up some great stats, but then, you know, fell right back flat on his face after that, especially the last couple of weeks with, you know, granted a tough Eagles defense, a tough Bears defense, but, but he's the leader of that offense, and that's his job to, you know, get them – much more than 20 points in the last two weeks. I'm putting a lot of the blame right there on uh, the quarterback in Carolina. As far as the Falcons, the the biggest problem is the leader of that offense is in San Francisco, and the loss of Kyle Shanahan cannot be be overstated because they practically brought back the same team. Um, you wouldn't think a change, especially where with Steve Sarkeesian, they made a point to try to keep things as fluid and smooth as possible and not change what they did. But Shanahan is proving his value to, uh, you know, as a offensive innovator because of the way that Atlanta has just stumbled since he's been gone. I completely agree about the Falcons. And also, here's a very important stat. Steve Sarkeesian in Five or six out of their first seven games 
They have targeted Julio Jones fewer than 10 times, and that is absolutely unacceptable. Shanahan would have force-fed Julio Jones the rock, or at least tried to, and Sarkeesian so far appears to not be showing any attempt or any serious attempt to get Julio Jones more involved. He is your biggest playmaker on offense, and you have to target him as much as possible, at least 10 times per game, but Sarkeesian has even failed that test. And for the Panthers, I'm going to slightly disagree with you. Yes, a lot of it is on cam. But Christian McCaffrey and Jonathan Stewart make that offense so one-dimensional. Like, if it's McCaffrey on the field, the defense can easily assume that it's going to be a pass because McCaffrey is struggling to run between the tackles. And with Stewart, oh, you assume it's going to be a run because Stewart cannot catch the ball out of the backfield. That offense is way too predictable. Uh, and they don't have the personnel to make it unpredictable. And uh, yes, in large part, it is on cam, but I think a lot of it is on, on those running backs because it gives defenses a clue as to what's coming all the time. But let's stay with this Panthers offense for a moment. Not only is Greg Olson uh, still out, he, he'll come back soon, but he is still out. Uh, they are, they've just traded away Kelvin Benjamin. How can the Panthers passing game in this game operate minus those two? Well, they're going to have to have Devin Funches step up and take that Kelvin Benjamin role, which they seem to think he's quite capable of doing. However, then who takes that Devin Funches role? And that's where they run into the problems there because the depth at wide receiver isn't really there. They're playing Curtis Samuel in a wide receiver role, even though he's you know more of a running back in that way. And Russell Shepard really hasn't shown a lot this season, so they're putting a lot of pressure on these other wide receivers to to step up their game because, as you mentioned, with Greg Olson out, you know you're limited with Ed Dixon. He's trying. He's actually played better than I expected after having been uh, bouncing around a bit, but you know you can only feed McCaffrey the ball in the passing game so many times. You've got to find that second, third option out there and it's going to be tough for them. That's all I can see is it's going to be tough. And that's why I thought that move didn't make a lot of sense unloading Benjamin. It will be tough, especially assuming the Falcons uh, shadow uh, Funches with uh, Trufant. I don't know if they will or won't, but uh, I would assume they will try to get uh, Trufant on uh, Funches as much as possible. What matchup do you think decides this game? Uh, this game's going to come down to whether the Panthers can get Matt Ryan off his spot and knock him down. Um, they need to get pressure on him. They can't let him get comfortable in the pocket. Uh, last week against the Jets was one of those games where he looked very comfortable in the second half and, and led the team back. And the Jets, you know, after seeing what they did to Buffalo last night, seemed strange. They couldn't mount any pressure against the Falcons, but for Carolina, that defensive line, they've got to get after him to have any chance of winning the game. And, and whether it's uh, Luke Keekley on a, a blitzing up the middle there or Mario Addison and Kawan Short uh, pound it up the middle there and get some pressure on him, they're going to have to find a way. Yes, and that matchup between Kawan Short and potentially Alex Matt could be the matchup that decides this game. Who do you have winning this game, Hal? Um. Boy, before the Benjamin trade, I had the Panthers win in this game. But without him, I had to flip the script here. And I have the Falcons pulling off a close one, 19-10. to 10. Whoa, interesting. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if the Falcons won, for the record. But I still believe that that Panthers defense at home uh, has the upper hand. And the Panthers come away in another close game there. And the game of the week, arguably, you got the Chiefs and the Cowboys at Jerry World. And headed into this morning... 
I had the Chiefs winning a close, high-scoring game, but it looks like Ezekiel Elliott is going to get to play again, given the fact that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals granted his request for a temporary administrative stay, which means his suspension is off for at least one more week, although I do ex personally expect it to be reinstated again for good next week. Uh, he does get to play here. And based on the presence of Ezekiel Elliott alone, should I change my prediction from Chiefs to Cowboys? I'm seriously thinking about it. I already did. So <laughs> I had the Chiefs winning 28 to, to 23, and I've changed it to the Cowboys 30 to 28 over the Chiefs. Ezekiel Elliott is that kind of presence, and if he can ground and pound it against the Chiefs and keep that dominant offense standing on the sideline, uh, that's a huge advantage for Dallas and, and keeping their defense off the field. That's how they're going to pull out the win. I completely agree. And looking at this Chiefs defense, this is a very disappointing unit. As we talked about uh, last week, the loss of Eric Berry early in the season just has taken this defense downhill in a bad way, especially in the run game. The, the Broncos, for crying out loud, the Trevor Simeon-led Broncos had like 177 yards on the ground against them last week. And, and if you are not able to stop the Broncos out of all teams on the ground, how can you expect to stop Ezekiel Elliott and that Cowboys with that offensive line on the ground? And it only gets worse. D Ford, uh, one of their star pass rushers, is not going to play. And Justin Houston, although I expect him to play, he is questionable and he's not 100%. And aside from Marcus Peters, uh, the, this Chiefs defense really isn't that good right now. And do you see anybody on the struggling Chiefs defense that could pressure Dak Prescott, especially with D Ford out and Justin Houston likely playing at not 100%? The only person that I can see that's, that's capable of doing that is young Chris Jones, their second-round pick from last season on the defensive line. He shows up in fits and spurts. Um, he's he had three sacks against Philadelphia in week two and then has disappeared off the face of the planet with only a half sack in the last six games. He showed flashes of his ability last year but didn't show consistency. And other than getting his arms up in the air and batting down some passes, um, you know, a couple of good plays ripping the ball away, he hasn't been generating the pressure that Kansas City has expected from him. And he's somebody that is definitely has to step up in the second half of the season for the Chiefs to replace some of that loss of pass rush. Yes, and if he does it, this uh, Chiefs uh, season that looked very promising in first could go south very quickly, especially if the offense tails off. But I see this game as very high scoring, don't you? Oh, definitely. I, You know, the Cowboys defense has struggled definitely this season. The Chiefs defense, as you indicated, has been, after a very strong first quarter of the season, really tailed off. Um, you know, definitely bet the over on this game. I bet the over on this game, but we both have the Cowboys in a close, high-scoring affair. And he is Hal Bet, ladies and gentlemen, Patriots writer for MusketFire.com, Cover32.com, and Scout Media. And Hal, we thank you so much once again for joining our program. But before we go, you know it's time for our rapid-fire prediction segment for the rest of these weeknight games, starting with Broncos-Eagles. Who do you got? Uh, this game, I really, really, really wanted to pick the Broncos, but there's just no way, even building off the momentum from uh, last week where they seem to show a stark spark in the second half. I've got the Eagles still rolling 27-12. to 12. Yeah, I got the Eagles too. It all comes down to the quarterback. Colts-Texans, who do you got? 
Well, this is another game I had to change the scores that I originally had uh, earlier this week with the loss of Deshaun Watson. It goes from must-see TV to nobody wants to watch this on TV. I think the Colts, uh, they've they've started using Jack Doyle a little more in the passing game. He had a a huge game last week. Um, I see the Colts pulling out a close one, 26-24. It wouldn't surprise me, but I still think the Texans at home uh, do enough to win 23-14. Ravens, Titans. Who do you got there? Oh, I got to go with the Titans. That Ravens offense is just so scary. As good as the defense has been, uh, you know, sixth in defensive points allowed, sixth in turnovers created for the Ravens. I just don't think they can sustain that without the offensive attack. Titans in a close one, low scoring, 17 to 13. I got the Titans by a similar margin of 21 to 17. Bucks and Saints at the Superdome. Who you got there? Boy, you know, I really was all in on the Buccaneers early in this season and at two and five, uh, just watching Jameis Winston struggling and the defense, Vernon Hargreaves has been such a huge disappointment in the secondary as well. Although he did step up his game last week a little, I'm still, I'm believing in that Saints, that offense, those multi-running backs, Drew Brees, 27-13 Saints. Yes, the Buccaneers' lack of pass rush uh, is not going to be able to get to Drew Brees and who will be able to pick him apart in the Dome. And Bengals-Jaguars it could be a titanic battle of defenses. We got there. Well, you know, I really love what I've seen out of Geno Atkins for the Bengals. I know we talked about him earlier in the season, and he had another huge game last week as well. I really want to see the Bengals, uh, Andy Dalton, get that passing game back and swing, but I just don't think it's going to happen against Jacksonville or Saxonville, as you said. So Jaguars 20-12 to with a healthy Leonard Fournette. Jaguars 17-13 in a close, low-scoring defensive battle. Rams at Giants. Uh, again, you know, the Giants, they can't stop anybody. The Rams are second in the league in scoring, which I don't think a lot of us saw before the season started. They're coming off a bye week. They're rested. The defense has given up an average of 11 points a game over the last three games. I'm all in on the Rams right now, 30-13 to 13 over the struggling Giants. I like the Rams in that game, too. Uh, the Probably a game that nobody wants to watch, probably even worse than the Colts and Texans, Cardinals at 49ers. Whew, that is a stinker. I really wanted to pick the 49ers. I'd really like to see them finally get off the schneid and, and get their first win. But, you know, they've been horrible on offense. They've been horrible on defense. And if they're talking about not playing Jimmy Garoppolo, give me a break. Get the kid in there. What did you trade for him? Without Garoppolo, it's Cardinals 24, 49ers 21. I am actually taking San Francisco. I believe that team has flirted with victory too many times to not win one right now against a team that is absolutely decimated. 49ers win an ugly one, 15 to 12. Redskins at Seahawks. Who do you got there? Oh, I'm taking the Seahawks. Dwayne Brown's going to make his impact scene in that first game. And if Russell Wilson coming off a 450-plus yard passing performance and four touchdowns, the Redskins have struggled on defense this year, 28th in points allowed. Seahawks are going to slice right through them. I have it, 37-13 to 13 Seahawks. I believe the Redskins will will show up and fight, but I have the Seahawks winning 31 to 21, and I believe that those injuries that the Redskins are still dealing with, especially out of the offensive line, will be 
their undoing. Sunday night matchup in Miami between the Raiders and Dolphins. What do you got? Well, the Dolphins kind of prove whether it's Matt Moore or Jay Cutler, this offense isn't doing much of anything right now. And trading away Ajayi, is it Damian Williams? Is it Kenyon Drake? Who's running the ball for him? I've got the Raiders with Marshawn Lynch back 23-13. to 13. I got the Raiders at this game, too, because the Dolphins, keep in mind, their record might have been 4-2 and two headed into last week against Baltimore, but they their DVOA rankings, according to Football Outsiders, was near dead last in the league. The, the, this isn't really a good team. This is arguably a bottom-five roster right now, and they're only going to get worse without JHI. Raiders win this game rather easily. Monday night in Lambeau between the Lions and Packers for second place in the NFC North. Who do you got? Well, I looked at the numbers with with Aaron Rodgers and without Aaron Rodgers, and wow, you know, it's hard to pick the Packers in this game. I like Brett Huntley. He might be a good player in a year or two, but, you know, 103 quarterback rating with Rodgers, 40% quarterback rating with Huntley in in charge. I'm going the Lions 27 to 13 and a Monday night snoozer. I agree. 27-17 Lions was my score. Thank you very much once again, Hal. And that's all for today here on Sports Crutch with D. Crom. But we'll be back next week with a look at Week 10, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to check out the episode archive as well as an up-to-date blog of mine at sportscrunch.com. And remember, that is Crunch with a K. For Hal Bent, who you can follow on Twitter, at HalBent01. Our producer, Chris Broadhead. I'm David Cromlow saying so long, and of course, stay awesome.